this is Micah Zenko, and thank you for joining us on another podcast session today. This is our ninth. You can now find all of our uh, sessions available on iTunes and also downloadable for Android at SoundCloud. We will also be posting them as they happen on my blog at Politics, Power, and Preventive Action. Joining me today is a different perspective on, uh, on how we look at security. Chris Rolf is with me today. Chris is a pen tester, he's a red teamer, he's a hacker, he has worked in the Department of Defense, he's founded his own small boutique pen testing company, and for a while he was the head of the red team here in New York City for Yahoo. Uh, he also speaks at a lot of security conferences, he teaches people how to hack, he makes people security conscious. One thing you can do to learn more about his work is just Google Chris Rolf in, uh, in YouTube or put it in Google or YouTube. You can also follow him on Twitter at Chris Rolf. That's C-H-R-I-S-R-O-H-L-F. So joining me today, Chris, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me, and thanks for the introduction. Yeah, happy, happy to get here because many academics and policy people that we talk to in the, quote, cyber world don't talk to people who actually do cyber penetration testing, don't talk to people who have the technical skills and proficiency. So this is a, a way to sort of expand the horizon of people who normally tune in and listen. First of all, what got you into doing security research? Uh, and specifically, you're on the offensive side of things. You try to identify vulnerabilities. You try to break in. Um, what was the appeal to being on offense rather than defense? Sure. So I've been tinkering with systems for my entire life, right, since I was like two years old. Um, but I didn't really get into security until like the early 2000s. And I think what appealed to me most were, like, my first exposure to that world was Frack Magazine. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of this, like, underground look at computer security and how things actually worked at the deepest, most technical level, often at the most undocumented level of operating systems and programs and how those mechanics worked. So I kind of got hooked on the offensive side by reading posts to mailing lists like BugTrack back then or Full Disclosure and seeing these you know, insanely complex exploits written for these obscure memory corruption vulnerabilities that only a handful of people in the world really right. knew about, knew how they worked, knew how to exploit them. And that just clicked for me, and I was like, oh man, I have to get into this. I have to understand how this works. So that's kind of how I got hooked on the offensive side. Very cool. And you teach people how to do this. You've led red teams. I mean, I have to ask my red team question. I'm sort of responsible. Is that, you know, when you have to hire a team, what do you look for? Is the, is the technical proficiency more important than mindset and approach? Or what are the, some of the characteristics that make for a good red team? So I think one of the most important things is the technical competency. I would love to talk about yeah. pen test versus red teams. Um, um, but I think the technical competency is, first and foremost, super, super important. I think the... The other side of it, the non-technical side is, you know, does that person have the mindset needed to challenge the assumptions that very smart people have made? You know, right. like oftentimes we're looking at code written by people who are brilliant, right. right? I mean, it's things like Chrome, for example, right? Like the people who write Chrome, they're very, very smart people. And you're going into it assuming you can, you can find these vulnerabilities in code written by very intelligent developers. So having that uh, adversarial mindset, having that healthy dose of skepticism, I think is really, really important. And what sort of tests do you give people to demonstrate they have technical proficiency? Well, there's your standard like engineering interview where you give someone uh, a challenge and you say, like, hey, I want you to write this code that does this. There's that kind of like, standard boilerplate stuff. Uh, but you might also throw at them snippets of vulnerable code, print it out, and write there on the spot and say, you know, find the vulnerability uh, and see how fast or how deep they can go in that code, given the fact they've never seen it before uh, and they have no idea what type of vulnerability right. may be in it. 
And what do you think about demonstrating that versus people who get the sort of rote certification? I mean, what value do you put upon the certificates these days? So I think certifications have their place. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of roles in security that have to be filled. But when it comes to exploitation and finding vulnerabilities, there's no certification out there right now that covers that skill set that's required. Because a lot of times when you're in that role, you're, you're defining the cutting edge of vulnerability research. Right. You're defining the cutting edge of right. offense. Like, how can you capture that in a certificate uh, or even a degree accurately? And if you can, it's probably stale by the time people start earning that certification. Right. So a big question I get asked a lot when I talk to people on this is, what is the difference between a pen test, a security assessment, a red team? I certainly have my own thoughts, but other than you get to charge more if you call it a red team, what do you think uh, the difference is between a pen test and a red team? I think the big difference, and again, everyone has different definitions of these sure. two things. I think there's a lot of overlap. But for me personally, a penetration test usually has a technical goal. You're setting out to find you know, a bunch of vulnerabilities in a program or a web app or a network. And the end goal there is usually technical in nature. For a red team, I feel like the goal is often and should be non-technical. Right? It might be challenging the processes that an incident response team has. It might be to gain access to usernames and passwords. But the technical means is like it's a means to an end in right. a red team. It's, it's how you get there usually. Right. But it's not necessarily the goal to, to test those, um, those technical things. And so how do you find that goal? Because it varies for every organization, every company. As I always test executives when I talk to them, I say, what do you care about most? And the first thing they always say is quarterly profits. And then I say more than reputation. They say, well, actually not that or more than market share. Oftentimes, they don't know what they care about most. I mean, how do you scope the engagement so it's useful to the organization? That's a really good question. So I, I think it's important to keep the business in mind and the business objectives and the business's goals. But the most important thing you can do as a red team is to look at the real attacks that are actually happening mm -hmm. to whatever organization you happen to work at. Because I think if you look at how a lot of companies offer red teaming engagements, it's often, well, we'll find a bunch of vulnerabilities and we'll break in and embarrass your blue team, right. and then you'll pay us. And that's kind of the wrong approach. I think the first thing you should do is sit down with, um, like if you have a vendor that provides intelligence on who's after you as a mm -hmm. company, or if you have an in-house incident response team, go look at the real attacks that have happened. Go look at the, real, the actors who are behind it. Look at what their motives were. Because oftentimes, their motives and their end goal is not going to change, but their techniques and their tactics and their tools, those things are gonna change over time. So as a red team, you should look at what they're doing, look at why they're doing it, try and emulate and mirror all those things as best as you can. Because oftentimes, like when you get attacked as an organization, as a company, you hopefully discovered the intrusion and you did something about it. You made some change to your technology stack or you made some change to your policies and your procedures internally. And now it's the red team's job to follow up and say, how effective were those changes? Sure. Are they actually doing anything to keep this actor out? Or were they just a complete waste of time? And you need to be constantly measuring that. And you led a red team here in New York for an enormous multinational company, which has an enormous attack surface. How did you, one, select what to disprove or prove? And how did you maintain your independence from the people who, the developer side of things? So I can't talk to Yahoo specifically. Sure. But I will say that I give this advice to anyone who's building a red team or running a red team at a large company. First and foremost is you have to report to a decision maker with authority because it's, it's very important as a red team to be able to challenge the assumptions, the assertions, the decisions of very senior people, very senior leadership right. in that company. Right? That's your job. That's right. your function. If you're not doing that, you're probably not doing your job as a red team. 
So you're going to be touching very sensitive things in that company. It might be financials, it might be communications if you're a public company. So it's important to have all those things laid out from the beginning. What's off limits and, you know, just because of laws and regulations right. and what is in scope. Right. Hopefully you can get, you know, 99% in scope and then that 1% is just kind of hands off for right. things outside of your control. The team should also be very independent of the rest of the security efforts you're doing at the company. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard to get away from that when you're, you know, you don't have unlimited resources, right. um, but try your best right. to, to separate yourself. It's a bad idea to take the people you currently have doing application security and say, hey, go run a red team, because they're already part of the blue team. They're right. already part of that machine that's made these assumptions about how good or how bad your defenses are. You really want an independent body internally to run those engagements. And I would also say something very critical you can do if you're a tech company is start grabbing random smart engineers from within the company and draft them into the red team sure. for two weeks. Because they're going to come at you with this perspective of, oh, I've thought about this thing years ago and I've never been able to get traction on it, this security vulnerability. Can we beat that up? Uh, can we make that part of our red team engagement? And chances are, you know, that's going to be something that's very valuable to the company. And now you've elevated it to this point where the red team can take advantage of it and more than likely get some positive impact and get it changed, get it fixed. So finally, I think you as a red team, you should constantly be meeting with the blue team. There should be this feedback loop where you're talking to your incident responders, you're talking to the people who are in charge of security for your products. You're constantly in this feedback loop of here's what worked, here's what didn't. And here, you know, if you're talking to incident response, you know, hey, if these actors come back at us, if they were to up their game a little bit, here's the things they might be doing uh, so that the blue team can constantly be evolving and changing and improving. And do you ever find situations where the either the blue team or the CISO or some decision maker just does not accept the vulnerabilities you find, just found you too technically proficient, you guys are too good, the actual threat we face is not as sophisticated as you are? Actually, no, not in my experience. Generally because I think anyone who's wise enough to set up a red team or bring in a third-party red mm -hmm. team is probably already clued into the threats and the reality of the world we live in today. So I've personally never run into that. You find that more when you're hired to do a penetration test mm -hmm. or you know it's something that you're doing to cross off uh, like a PCI compliance check mark. That's when you right, run into right, those issues. Right. So you've also done a little work in government and now you've done a lot of work outside of government. There are multiple efforts, both in the intelligence community and the Department of Defense to swallow up people from the private sector, come work for us for six months, setting up DIUX, I think they're called, in Cambridge and in Silicon Valley. I mean, what do you think uh, the links are between uh, the sort of national security infrastructure and the needs that they have and the private sector security community? There's a lot of overlap, but there's also a lot of very unique challenges in government, right? So, I mean, right off the bat, obviously, I, I can't talk the specifics of sure. my time there, um, but it was also a long time ago, and sure. things have evolved and changed since then. I think it's very easy to criticize government and how slow they move, but it's like it's also key to remember that their scope and their scale are just like a hundred times right. the largest company that you can think of. And oftentimes they're very slow to adopt change, both in technology and policy and procedure, just because it's such a massive undertaking to get those initiatives started, right? It takes a long time to build out contracts and to move technology that they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on 10 years ago or right. more. And, and also, when they make those changes, lives could be impacted, right? So it's, it's important, I think, to keep in mind that their changes have very big impacts in their mission and what they do. 
you know, there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of bureaucracy in government. And a lot of that's there for a reason. Right. Some of it, not so much, right? Like certifications. You know, you look at how DHS has these like certification requirements for quote unquote cyber professionals. And in my opinion, I think they need to throw a lot of that out of the door. But there is also this big discussion in compensation in private industry versus public. And I think it's an important discussion to have. But at the end of the day, when you work in government, you know, you're doing a public service. So you should never go there to get rich, right? right? You should never go there to make a ton of money. You should go to make a difference to something that's important to a lot of people's lives, especially in the national security area. So I think we have to keep all of those things in mind when we have this debate. There are different worlds, there's different goals, uh, and there's more on the line when it comes to government and national security. Sure, sure. I mean, hiring is such a difficult thing in, in government, and they cannot throw a $100,000 $100,000 signing bonus yeah. at somebody with great skills, yeah. which you, you actually see at some security conferences, people just swallowing them up right there on the spot. Yeah, and also there's, you know, when you work for a private company, you can go and participate in things like Phone to Own and these right. other conferences and make bug bounties to prove your skills. You can't really do that in government. Right. Um, but I think one of the things, especially in the national security side, that they can lean on is the mission. They have a very important mission. So it really matters that they succeed and that they have very smart people running the show every day. And the ability to offer, especially kids out of college, that mission is something that no company will ever be able to offer. Did you take a look at the hack the Pentagon? I did. I did take a look at it. I think it's a really, it's a good move. It's the right direction to go in. You know, 1% of 1% of 1% of their attack surface and what I think government um, should really be worried about. But it was absolutely a move in the right direction. If not even just for the, the bug bounty aspect, for the interacting with the security community. That was a huge step forward in making sure that the security community knows that the government is paying attention to them uh, and cares about the the research and the things they have to say. So talk a little bit about the security community. You go to a lot of the cons, you sit on the review board at Black Hat, you must sift through lots of people applying to give talks. The security community, as as from an outsider, you look at it, it's quite interesting. There's a lot of sort of navel-gazing, there's a lot of hand-wringing about what state we're in, why are we in this, is it just for profit? Are people have the best interests? Are people still sharing what they've learned? Are they making connections outside of our sort of insular world? Talk about, from your perspective, the state of the community. I think it's getting better every year. It's getting bigger every year. And every year that it gets bigger brings more diverse backgrounds, more diverse people. So it is improving a lot. There's still a lot of things we need to work on. As a community, we're we're very focused on sexy hacks, right? We're interested right. in the latest and greatest, you know, how is this IoT device broken? Right. And like, how can someone sit in the thermostat in my house and I'll never know about right. it? And like, that stuff is interesting. It certainly gets eyeballs on security, which is important. And it drives dollars and resources towards security, which is also important. I do think that the community occasionally should step back and look at the bigger picture. You know, we spend a lot of time breaking the technology of the day, finding the next vulnerability, but the truth is that code applications, you know, technology is changing every single day and more and more things are being produced every single day. And we can't keep up this, this rat race of just finding vulnerabilities. Right. A lot of people get focused on zero day vulnerabilities, for example. And I think that's just, it's a very shallow point of view. It's very short sighted. There's no security end goal, right? There's no finish line for this. There's always going to be vulnerabilities. There's always going to be zero days. Mm -hmm. What's more important is the policy for how we respond, how we deal with those things. And then on the technical side, how you mitigate those issues. And you just make it so they're so incredibly painful and difficult to exploit 
that they take so many resources and they take a team of people to exploit. Right. So at the end of the day, the only people who can really play the game are people who can afford to play the game. And as long as you keep raising that bar, then we're headed in the right direction. I mean, that's, that's also one of the things. It's, a, it's an attack perspective, and as I always think, it's the outside attacker who has agency to corrupt your network rather than who is maintaining the network and who's an employee and a staffer and what processes and behavioral norms do you need to emphasize internally, which is as important than protecting yourself from what's coming out of the outside. Yeah, absolutely. Culture absolutely matters. You know, as long as everyone is thinking security and thinking how they might be introducing risk, mm -hmm. that, is, that is very, very helpful. So now that everything with IoT and all the vulnerabilities you can find, talk about the disclosure process. I mean, it used to be, as people would say, you found a vulnerability, you pick up the phone or, or look on the website for who to contact, and they'd think maybe you're blackmailing them or they might uh, call the FBI or DHS or somebody. But it seems that other than firms who have bug bounty competitions, that most software developers are much more open to being disclosed. And then some people do it more responsibly than others, and some might be selling what they find to the open market. But talk, talk about the process. Sure. So this is a very intensely debated topic. If you spend any time in the security community, security industry, disclosure is something that inevitably will come up in discussions with uh, people, you know, professionals or friends. So some people tend to think that if we just drop this vulnerability, full disclosure, that it'll get fixed faster. And there actually is evidence for that, right? right? If you look back at like Microsoft's track record, right. like it kind of came to a head with full disclosure. And to Microsoft's credit, they completely changed the company's culture. Right. And now they're actually one of the best examples of secure code and how to do the SDLC, how to produce secure programs uh, at scale. And then other people think, you know, I could sell this vulnerability that I find mm -hmm. and make a lot of money from it. And some people like to take the coordinated disclosure route and say, you know, well, I'm going to contact the vendor and we're going to go from there. And we're going to give them 90 days mm -hmm. to respond and work with me. You know, and if they work with me, maybe we'll go beyond the 90 days as long as they're being responsible, quote unquote, responsible and working towards a patch. Now, the reason I say coordinated instead of responsible is I think you have to be careful in letting someone dictate the terms of what is responsible versus what isn't responsible, right? right. right? Because that really comes down to ethics, and that's really a subjective thing, right? What is moral or ethical to someone might be immoral or unethical to someone right. else. So we have to be careful the way we frame this discussion. So I like to use the term coordinated disclosure. So back to your question of, you know, how does this play out? All three of those things happen. People drop zero-day vulnerabilities on the internet all the time. People will reach for the coordinated disclosure, and they'll send an email to a vendor, which, by the way, is getting a lot better. Really? A lot better. So like 10, 15, 20 years ago, you absolutely would see threats of lawsuits from large companies trying to protect their bottom line. Mm -hmm. And today, I'd say more often than not, the companies are more receptive to it. They might have a very long timeline in fixing that bug, but eventually they'll get around to it. Right. There's usually, you know, the threat of lawsuits is, I don't want to say going away, but it's absolutely, it's diminishing over time. Right. And people sell vulnerabilities all the time. And I think that's probably one of the most hotly contested areas of vulnerability disclosure. And I think it's very, very important to keep in mind that not every vulnerability that's found is exploitable. Or even, you know, even if it is exploitable, even a good choice if you're running an offensive attack campaign. A very, very slim minority of vulnerabilities that are discovered are actually usable in a real attack campaign. And even if you were to say, like, ban the sale of zero-day vulnerabilities, right. number one, you won't stop uh, nation-state attackers right. from working on them and exploiting them. And also, uh, my friend Dino, I think, said it best, is that stockpiling zero-day vulnerabilities is like stockpiling fruit. 
There's really no point. Someone else is going to discover right, it right. and is going to report it and it's going to die. Right. So I really don't see people selling zero-day vulnerabilities as a big threat to, to security. Uh, obviously, I personally don't do it. I don't right. sell the bugs that I come up with. I, I report them. But I don't see it as a big threat to our security as a nation or you know, to a lot of the companies out there who might be concerned about it. And what do you think? I mean, this is one of the issues between sort of government policy and, and the community is, you know, there's legislation that was written in the era of the movie War Games and Sneakers where it potentially criminalized some of what normal hackers do every day in a either coordinated or responsible manner. I mean, I spent time in Washington on Capitol Hill, and the perceptions they have of hackers is quite limited. Now, part of that is the responsibility of the community itself to reach out to policymakers, and there's been a better effort to do that, especially on uh, IoT things and medical devices and, and automobiles. But there's still this gap between the policy world and the security community. I mean, what, what needs to happen to sort of close that? I do think we're getting better at that. Um, one of the good examples was the Wassenaar uh, intrusion software right. regulations from last year and the year before. So, you know, there was good outreach there to the security community and security industry from the Department of Commerce and elsewhere from like senior lawmakers. We do need to get a lot better at that. And I think that's it's going away, but it definitely is an artifact of the security research community having this kind of like inner circle mentality of like, if you can't own stuff, if you can't hack stuff, right. then you, know, you just can't be a part of the discussion. Right. Uh, and that absolutely needs to change. Because if we're not part of that larger policy discussion, those very important topics, those big decisions are going to be decided without us and without right. our input, which is a disastrous thing, right? right? We've seen in the past bad, bad policy is bad for what we do. It's bad for security if we don't involve the people who are doing it every right. day. So a couple of fun questions. If you're given two years of unlimited research time and a million dollars, What's the security research project that you would sort of dream to, to tackle? So I absolutely love this question because I ask a very similar question when I interview people. Right. Because I want to know, do they have a passion for security? Right. If they do, they're going to have an answer to this right, right away. Uh, and I absolutely have an answer to this right away. If I had to choose like a technical research project, I'd probably look at implementing a lot of the software security like exploit mitigations we've come up with in software over the past few years and sort of moving them into hardware. That's where I would spend my, my technical dollars. On the non-technical side, I'd probably plow a bunch of money into studying what is most effective when it comes to security. Is it policy? Is it procedure? Is it culture? Where, where is that money best spent? Right. Uh, and if it is spent on, best spent on technology, what are the technologies that are actually working? And I would probably spend, spend that money on a study to produce some actual data that was usable for both policymakers and CISOs and CEOs. It's interesting because I used to work in the nuclear security world 10 years ago, and like people were trying to figure out protecting fissile material has a, there's security culture issues, there's insider threat issues, there's procedures issues, and, and there were people, even for nuclear weapons, which you think people would want to protect the most, that didn't exist there and then. And now this IoT, which is going to be in billions and billions of everything in all of our world, you can't go to people and say, what exactly should we be doing? Because nobody has a prioritized, data-driven assessment of what actually works. Yeah, it's, it's totally different for everyone. Um, as we know, like technology touches, it touches everything. Like you can be a big 150-year-old conglomerate that makes the most basic of products. But at the end of the day, you're still a tech company because you rely on technology to do business. Right. And a lot of those giant, large organizations, they're in different businesses, which means that different things are important to them when it comes to security. But at the end of the day, they all have to pay attention to, like you said, the IoT devices. It's the, the thermostat on the wall 
where the incident response team doesn't really have a presence and doesn't run forensics regularly. These are things we have to think about. And technology is moving far faster um, than we've been able to keep up with security in terms of what works and what doesn't work. There's no hard data to say, this is what you should be focusing on if you're in this vertical, you're this type of company. But the funny thing is what people are doing is they're asking larger outside companies to tell them what they need to do. Yeah, and a lot of those and outside... they have their own motivations. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And if you look at, like, you talk to a Fortune 500, they might say they have a lot of security people on staff, but at the end of the day, they're still trying to figure it out. They're still trying to figure out their security strategy, what works and what doesn't. Uh, so it can be kind of an advantage for a smaller company to be very nimble and change how they look at security all the time right. to find what fits, you know, what works and what doesn't. So you must get asked this because if you use the word cyber in any presentation, people want to know, what do I need to know to protect my phone? So either phone, laptop, desktop, what are the two or three common sense security practices you recommend? So the top things you can do, especially in mobile, is to have an iPhone and don't jailbreak it. <laughs> Under any circumstances, don't jailbreak it. Explain to people what jailbreaking is. So jailbreaking is basically getting deeper access to your device, getting like root level access to your device. You can install apps that aren't signed by Apple. Mm -hmm. um, so you can do more with your device. The problem with that is when you jailbreak your device, you generally turn off every security protection right. that makes it as secure as it is. Apple goes to great lengths to make your phone difficult to break right. into. So don't jailbreak your, your iPhone if you have one. The other things I'd, I'd say are enable two-factor on sure. any online account you have, your sure. mail account. Enable two-factor, get a password manager, and use Chrome to surf the internet. Right. Those are the top things I recommend. And so last question, which we ask everybody, if you could talk to yourself 10, 15 years ago or the equivalent young person coming up in the field, what advice would you give to a young security researcher, young hackers? So the first thing I would say is look at what's available in security. I spoke to a bunch of students over the summer, high school students who are part of this Gen Cyber program. And what I wanted to convey to them was that security is not just like offense and defense, right? right. Like that's a high level view. But under especially the defensive side, you know, there's 30 different roles that you may fit into that you may enjoy. So I would certainly start off by looking at what options are available to you, right? Is it compliance? Is it engineering? Is it incident response? There's tons and tons of opportunities out mm -hmm. there, and it's growing every year right. what part of security you can work right. in. So first explore that. If it's the technical side you're interested in, which is the track that I've went down, you have to learn to code. At the deepest level, the technology we rely on requires an understanding of code, requires understanding how systems work. And if you want to be successful on the uh, technical side of security, you have to know those things at the lowest possible level. So if you're writing code in college or you come out of college, you're trying to find a job, publish the code you've written on GitHub or somewhere else. You know, give talks on the research you're doing at small security conferences to build your resume. Mm -hmm. uh, join Twitter. You know, that's where the security community converses. Right. Join that conversation. Even if you're only reading what people are talking about for the first six months, look at what is timely and what, what is relevant to that conversation. And I'm sure you'll find overlap with the things you're interested in. And it'll give you an opportunity to go hack on things that people are looking for solutions and answers to. What are a couple blogs? Because with your firm at Leith SR, you used to present some of your insights in a blog. A lot of firms do. What are a couple blogs you recommend people to read? These days, oh, there, there's so many technical blogs. I would right. say to check out the NetSec subreddit on Reddit, which will have great mm -hmm. links all the time. And the most important thing you can focus on, like I said, is the 
the security community on Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, which has basically replaced my RSS reader over the years. Right. I just read my Twitter feed multiple times per day, sometimes too much, and see what research people are publishing. And then, of course, you can go look at conferences like Black Hat, and all the slides will be posted right, for right. the talks people have given. And you can literally just sit there for three months and read conference papers and slides. You know, 10, 15 years ago, that, that information was much, much harder to come across. I've also learned that when either Black Hat or DEF CON puts out their list of speakers, you can often find those papers before they're even presented. Yeah. Because they've given that at conferences to build their way up. Yep, there. absolutely. Or they're on Twitter talking about yep. um, what they're looking at. Well, this was a fascinating conversation with Chris Rolfe. I invite you again, as he said, look at Twitter. His Twitter feed is at Chris Rolfe, R-O-H-L-F. Check him out, follow him, and know what he knows. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.